this wonderful book. And today we come to one of those passages in Revelation that has sparked more imaginations than I think any other chapter in Revelation. Today we come to the infamous beast, his mark, and that number 666. Hollywood's made a circus out of this passage, and I think so has Christian culture. In my lifetime, I have heard, I've lost count of how many powerful people I have heard named as the beast or the antichrist. And there's been so much speculation about what the mark of the beast is. Perhaps you've heard it. Could be a tattoo or maybe a barcode or maybe some chip implanted under the skin. Maybe it's the COVID vaccine. We don't know, but the speculation is crazy. There's a near hysteria that rises out of Revelation 13 and in with apparent insatiability, is trying to transport elements of Revelation 13 into the 21st century. I think people are blind to what John is really writing about. As G.K. Chesterton wrote, Though St. John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. It's critical to remember that though Revelation has application for us today, it was not written to us. It was written to heavily Jewish churches, seven of them in Asia Minor, minor, in the first century, and I would say during the reign of Nero. As we move through the passages today, I, I hope you see how clearly that comes off of the pages. The context of Revelation 13 is meant for the first century, and so we're going to look at that context a lot today. Now, here's a bold statement. It's my goal today to identify the Antichrist and the false prophet. After everything I just said, really? Really? Oh, it's going to be fun. But really, the, the goal is to bring sobriety where there's hysteria, to bring discernment where there might not be some. Let's read this chapter, Revelation 13. John writes, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like bears, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given, over it, uh, authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain 
If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image of the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who might not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Who is like you, Father? There is none. And any who rise up to try to make an attempt at your throne are fools, are like dust before you, are swept away and will be remembered no more. But all who come to you in Christ can stand in your presence, know you, be loved by you, worship you. Let us be counted among these. Your people, the elect, your church, your bride, for whom you sent your Son. We give you all praise and glory and honor that you have begun a good work in us. And Father, we ask that you bring it to completion, even this sermon today. May it draw us towards that completion, the goal of our faith, salvation, life eternal. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Revelation 12 ended with a great red dragon. It was a symbol for Satan, and he's standing on the shoreline. He is furious with the Jewish church. He's hungry to devour the Gentile church. And so from the shore, this red dragon, Satan, looks out over the ocean. We've seen it before. The sea, the ocean, is a symbol in Revelation. Revelation 17, 15 tells us explicitly what it is. The angel said to me, The waters that you saw are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. The sea symbolizes the nations. And think about it from Israel's perspective. They would stand on the shoreline, look across the water of the Mediterranean, and somewhere out there in the distant were all these nations, all these different peoples. And so the sea became a symbol of the nations. Look at verse, verses 1 and 2 again. I saw a beast rising out of the sea. 
with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like bears, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So out of the sea rises this terrible beast. The beast, just like the dragon, is a compilation of the four beasts of Daniel chapter 7. So listen to this from Daniel 7. Four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, another like a leopard. And behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. So as I have said, the beasts of Daniel 7 represented four different kingdoms or empires. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then finally Rome. The fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7 and the beast of Revelation 13, they are Rome. And now this beast has taken on the attributes of the preceding three beasts, the lion, the leopard, and the bear. The empire of Rome has taken on attributes of the empires that have come before it. Is it not true? Rome worshipped some of the same gods, just given different names as its preceding empires. They had a similar governmental structure, many of the same oppressive and barbarous practices. Each empire was building upon what the previous empires had achieved. And now Rome occupied almost all the territories that those previous empires had. Rome was the greatest, most terrible of them all. And again, we see that the beast rising out of the sea and the dragon, they have many of the similar, similar attributes. They both have uh, ten horns and seven heads. They are linking, they are being linked together because it is Satan who gives power to the beast, to Rome. That's what we see down in verse 4. Now, chapter 13 does not come right out and tell us what the seven heads and ten horns are, but chapter 17 does. So let's look at chapter 17, where we read the seven horns, sorry, the, the seven heads are seven mountains. They are also seven kings five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings. Okay, so the ten horns are ten kings, but we're not going to concern ourselves with those ten kings today. Instead, we're going to consider these seven heads, which are seven mountains. And Rome was known as the city of seven hills. Or it was referred to just as a nickname, the city of seven mountains, the same way we might call New York the Big Apple or Philadelphia the city of brotherly love. Rome was the city of seven mountains. The seven heads are not just seven mountains, but they also symbolize seven kings. And we read there, five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. And I'm going to argue that these seven heads 
which are seven kings, are the Roman Caesars. Let me show the next slide. These are the seven kings, symbolized by the seven heads of the beast. From the first Caesar, effectively, to the sixth Caesar, the sixth one who is is Nero, meaning that if he is, while John is writing, John writes during the reign of Nero. John writes before the fall of the temple in 70 AD. So the symbolism behind the seven heads of the beast, which are seven mountains and seven kings, That would have been obvious to every first century reader who knew anything about Rome. They would have known immediately that the beast is Rome. Like verse 1 says, the beast also had blasphemous names on its seven heads. Seven kings that were blasphemous. Romans worshipped Julius Caesar, the first emperor effectively, like a god. In fact, they ranked Julius just beneath Jupiter, and Jupiter was their supreme deity. Augustus made Caesar worship law, officially beginning the state-sanctioned Roman imperial cult. Everyone in the empire was required to worship Caesar. And the names that they used to deify themselves were absolutely blasphemous. Back in March, I was in Ephesus, and I took a picture for today. Here's an arch in Ephesus dedicated to Caesar Augustus. It's his title right there on the top in Latin, but I'll translate it for you. Emperor, Caesar, Son of God, Augustus. High priest, consul, meaning president, and then an official title, tribunicia potestas, which effectively means holy one, indestructible, inviolable, and supremely sovereign. Blasphemous names. All of the Caesars, from Augustus to Nero, adopted these types of names for themselves. All of them called themselves the Son of God. And you can see that the symbolism of the beast is pointing to Rome. Rome is the beast coming up out of the sea. And like verse 2 ends, the dragon had given Rome its power, its authority, its throne. In other words, Rome was wicked And its truest Caesar was Satan. Look at verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Again, we are seeing more symbolism that's pointing us to Rome. The beast receives a mortal wound. So that line of Caesars that we saw, that descended from Julius, that remained unbroken for about 130 years. That line, it was called the Julio-Claudian dynasty. These Caesars, this grouping of Caesars, had conquered the known world. 
They had established peace and prosperity like the planet had never seen before, at least not in this part of the world. Even still, there was one particular hot spot of rebellion and strife that was in Judea. And in 66 AD, Nero sent a vast military force to end this Jewish revolt and destroy Jerusalem. But back in Rome, Nero had become like a mad beast. Some of his own people are even calling him as a nickname, the beast. He had grown far too erratic. And so in 68 AD, the Roman Senate sentenced Nero to death. But Nero committed suicide before they could get to him. The Julio-Claudian dynasty was broken. Rome was thrown into upheaval and civil war. And even the temple of Jupiter on one of the seven mountains was burned. Then with chaos in Rome... The Roman legions withdrew from their war in Judea. They were right at the walls of Jerusalem, and they withdrew. For a brief moment, it looked like Judea and Jerusalem had escaped destruction. It looked like Rome had received a mortal wound. In Rome, it was called the year of the four Caesars. For after Nero committed suicide, Galba seized the throne. But he was murdered seven months later. Then Otho took the throne, but within three months he was dead. Vitellius lasted eight months. And finally Vespasian, the same general who was leading the war against the Jews, he became Caesar. And Vespasian brought an end to the civil war. He restored stability. He established the Flavian dynasty. And he sent his son Titus to finish the job that he had started in Rome Titus was the one to burn down the temple. Rome's mortal wound was healed. Look how verse 3 says that the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. The word translated as earth right there, as we've seen a number of times, is the Greek word gi. It's a word that can also be translated as land. I believe it should be translated as land here in this verse. For in Revelation, the land symbolizes Israel. And in many places in Scripture beyond Revelation, land symbolizes Israel just like sea symbolizes the Gentiles. For the condition of the promised land, the land that God had given Israel, the condition of this land was a manifestation of Israel's relationship to God. If the land was in bad shape, then Israel's relationship to God was in bad shape. Conversely, if the land was abundant and flowing with milk and honey, then Israel's relationship to God was good, was going well. So the land symbolizes Israel. Therefore, I think verse 3 should be translated as such. The land marveled as they followed the beast. And the next verse helps us understand why this distinction is important. Look at verse 4. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? You hear how they're worshipping the beast in that verse? It was a twisting of worship that was supposed to be directed to God. It was, it was counterfeit worship, corrupted 
demonic. This is how it was supposed to be from Psalm 113. The Lord is high above the nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like our God who is seated on high? And now with similar yet corrupted language, they worship the beast. They worship Rome. The beast had become an idol, a false god. And the Bible tells us that any, any form of idol worship is worship of Satan. It is demonic. So to worship Rome was to worship Satan. And who is the they that is doing the worship in verse 4? They worship the dragon. They worship the beast. They are in verse 3. And they marveled at the healed beast. So I am saying that the symbolism of Revelation 13 tells us that the Jews were worshiping Caesar rather than God. And now I want you to hear what happened when God in the flesh, the King of Kings, was presented before the Jews. Pilate said to the Jews, Behold, your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar! So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. They condemned their Messiah, before whom they should have cried out, Who is like you, O God, our King? But instead they cry out, Who is like the beast? We have no king but Caesar. They publicly made this declaration, and it only proved the point. The religious establishment in Jerusalem had become Satan worshippers which is what Christ said in the beginning of Revelation. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. It's important to note here that the Jews themselves are, are fractured into three general categories as Revelation sees it. The first category is there's the religious establishment and they're devout. They claim they are the ones who are claiming Caesar as king. Then there are the zealots, and they hated Rome, and they hate the religious establishment that was in bed with Rome. And these are the ones who have incited war against Rome. Before Rome destroyed Jerusalem, these zealots had killed, converted, or controlled the entire religious establishment. And then finally, there's a third group of Jews those that believed in Christ, the Messianic Jews, they are the first fruits of the church. The vision of Revelation 13 only concerns itself with this first category of Jews, those who worship the beast. Because they had the temple, they had the priesthood, they had the scriptures. Should they not have known who God is and who their king was? Should they not have known? If anyone on earth should have known 
It should have been them. But they chose the beast. Verse 5, the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And we hear that symbolic time frame again, don't we? 42 months. Three and a half years. It's a period of time where God's enemies appear victorious, but it's only for a short while because in the end, God reveals himself to be the victor, to be victorious. But in this 42-month period here in Revelation 13, there are five characteristics of the beast. He's arrogant and blasphemous. He has authority. He blasphemes God and the church. He makes war on the church and conquers it, though it's just an apparent conquering. And fifth, he rules these many nations. He has a great dominion. Now, I have said that the beast is Rome. Truly it is. But the beast is given a mouth. Did you see that? The beast was given a mouth. And just as the president speaks for the United States, the Caesar spoke for Rome. In verses 5 through 7, that arrogant, blasphemous person who is speaking for Rome is none other than the king who is, Nero. The beast is personified in Nero. Therefore, we might also call Nero the Antichrist. So why? It's quite a claim. Why is Nero the Antichrist? Because Jesus is the true king who righteously reigns over the nations now and forever. Nero was the counterfeit king who ruled the nations for a short period. He is the Antichrist because his reign was wicked and he opposed God. Nero was so opposed to Christ that he was the very first one to use governmental powers to persecute Christians, and how he did. He made war on the church. There was a great fire in Rome, and after it broke out, he blamed the Christians for starting this fire. And so I'm going to read for you what Tacitus wrote. Nero falsely accused as the culprits and punished with the utmost refinement of cruelty a class hated for their abominations, who are commonly called Christians. Christ, from whom their name is derived, was executed at the hands of the procurator Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. Checked for a moment, this pernicious superstition again broke out, not only in Judea, the source of the evil, but even in Rome. Accordingly, arrest was first made of those who confessed to being Christians. Then on their evidence... An immense multitude was convicted, not so much on the charge of arson as because of their hatred for the human race. Besides being put to death, they were made to serve as objects of amusement. They were clothed in the hides of beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified, others set on fire to serve to illuminate the night when daylight failed. 
All this gave rise to a feeling of pity, even towards men whose guilt merited the most exemplary punishment. For it was felt that they were being destroyed not for the public good, but to gratify the cruelty of an individual. The individual Tacitus speaks of is Nero. Tertullian wrote, It was a war against the very name. To be a Christian was of itself crime enough. Both of these quotes come from the second century. Tertullian was a Christian. He writes in retrospect, Tacitus was not. He was very Roman. And he was a boy during Nero's persecutions. Nero was the embodiment of those five characteristics happening in that 42-month period. He was arrogant and blasphemous and authoritative, and he warred against the church, and he was the ruler of a great dominion. And it is interesting that though the 42-month period is symbolic, there is an earthly correlation. The fire of Rome broke out in 64 A.D., Christian persecution was ordered by November of that year. Nero committed suicide in June of 68 AD. In other words, Nero was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them for a period of about 42 months. When the dragon wanted to make war on the church, he found a very useful tool in Rome. Look at verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Verse 7 had expansive language, right? Every tribe, people, language, and nation. And then in verse 8, we suddenly return to the Greek word gi. And again, we are reminded that the Jews are worshiping the beast along with every tribe, tongue, nation that existed in the Roman world. And because they worship the beast, it proves that their names were not written in the Lamb's book of life. Man, we could have a whole sermon. <laughs> we could have a whole sermon or a series of sermons on just these three verses of Revelation 13. And of course, we hardly have time to open up the mysteries that we find in these verses. So I'm going to go sort of at a 30,000 foot level over these verses. Verse 8 has ambiguity. Some of your Bibles might read, if you have the NIV, it will read, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Mine read like this. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Do you see that distinction? It's either the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world or names written in a book before the foundation of the world. But I think that the revelation of 
or sorry, the context of Revelation is pointing to that second interpretation that the names of the elect have been written in the book of life from before the foundations of the world were laid. That pulls on a thread that is absolutely woven into Revelation. God has an elect. He has chosen them. He is protecting them. He will finally gather them to himself. He is doing it. He is the victor, and the church is the elect are sharing in his victory. It's all over Revelation. We have not done anything except to trust in him. I'd say that's also all over Scripture. Romans 8.29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. The elect are not chosen because of something special within us or because we have earned some position because of a particular bloodline. No, the elect are chosen simply because God wants them. And there is no more that we can know about that. He chooses because he wants. It's a mystery. We don't understand how it works. But this we do know. If you cry out to God and say, Abba, Father, if you love Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, if you know the freedom of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, then your name is in the book of life. You are God's elect. And God is working all things together for your good. And those who reject Christ are condemned. Their unrepentance proves that God has passed over them and that their names are not written in the book of life. As verse 10 says, If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Or as Peter put it another way, For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. From before the foundations of the world were laid, God has determined all things, even the fall of humanity. And from the fallen wreckage of humanity, he has chosen for himself those that would be saved through faith. He has elected them. And God determined that in all things and in every contour of history, he would be glorified, magnified. How easily we can get lost in those depths, brothers and sisters. No man is able to find its bottom. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. John writes, Then I saw another beast 
rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Another beast rising from the earth. You know what that word is, right? Ghee. Another beast rising from the land. The second beast comes from within the promised land, comes from within Israel. It looks like a sheep, but it speaks like a dragon. That should remind you of Jesus' words. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The second beast is commonly referred to as the false prophet, a wolf in sheep's clothing, or better, a dragon in sheep's clothing. Then verse 12 says, It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Back in verses 3 and 4, we saw that the Jewish religious establishment was worshiping Rome, the beast who had received the mortal wound. And now, as false prophets, the religious establishment leads the Jews in satanic worship. Is that not the definition of false prophet? Leading a whole people in satanic worship? At this point in history, the Jews had very little to do with biblical faith. Instead, they had become a cult, a pharisaical tradition of religious rituals, of self-justification, and the Roman government was empowering the Jewish religious establishment to go on doing this, even, even providing money and funds so long as the religious leaders went on calling Caesar king. The Jews had utterly destroyed their covenant with God, and yet they were happy to make this covenant with the Antichrist. Revelation 13 shows us the Jewish people were controlled by the religious establishment, and the religious establishment was controlled by Rome, and Rome was controlled by Satan. Verse 13 says, it performed great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it, it deceived those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So does this second beast perform miracles? Does the Jewish religious establishment perform miracles? There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in this city and amazed the people of Samaria, the city of Jerusalem, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. In Acts 13, Barnabas and Saul came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the Roman proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that was the meaning of his name, 
opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Acts 19 talks about Jewish itinerant preachers going around trying to perform miracles. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest were even beaten up when their exorcism failed. So these examples from Acts, they are no exception. They are not the oddities. They had become the norm among the Jews. False prophets, false miracle workers, demonic magicians filled the ranks of the Jewish religious establishment, which is exactly what Jesus had warned his followers about. He said, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. No Jew would have thought that Jesus was talking about Gentile false messiahs and Gentile false prophets. Jesus was talking about Jewish false prophets and Jewish false messiahs and Jewish false prophets and Jewish false Christs and Jewish false miracle workers proliferated in those days. And we don't know if there were any that actually called fire down from heaven, like Revelation 13, 13 says, but that isn't really the point. The point is that the true prophets of God did call down fire from heaven. Moses, Elijah. And now what we have is a proliferation of counterfeits, trying to be prophets of God, but they were false. They were liars. They were deceivers. Brothers and sisters, how many false prophets peddling their false miracles exist in our day? Do not follow them. They will lead you astray. They would lead you to worship the dragon. No, not one of these people or societal establishments in the first century thought that they were Satan worshippers. Not one of them thought that. False religion and Satan worship looks innocent, like a sheep. And it takes discernment to see the dragon within. Back in chapter 13, verse 14 says that they made an image for the beast. And then in 15, they give this image breath. Look at that. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. As the, con- as the Christian movement continued to grow, Jewish synagogues everywhere began to insist on submission to Caesar, to the emperor. For if a, pers- if a person refused to say that, Christ, or that Caesar is Lord, that probably meant that they were a Christian. Only Christians wouldn't say those words. Many Christians lost their lives because of it. The Jews and the Romans used this tactic to smoke out Christians and then to persecute them. One way that Jewish Christians were persecuted was through excommunication from Jewish society. They were shunned. They were banned. They were not allowed to participate 
in economic activity, or there was no buying or selling. You see, the Jews did not literally erect statues and perform religious rites to Nero or to Rome. But the religious establishment was happy to call a false god their king, to lead all the people into serving a perverse man who called himself the Son of God. All of these Jews had become the breathing image of the beast. The religious establishment had become the breathing image of the beast. Worshippers of Christ are conformed into his image. They're given the breath of the Holy Spirit. Worshippers, worshipers of the Antichrist are conformed to the image of Satan. They breathe lies. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. The Jews had become the image of the beast, who is himself the image of Satan. All of them are of their father, the devil, and they desire to do the devil's will. And now, now we can understand the mark of the beast. Taken upon the forehead, or the right hand. You know, it has nothing to do with an actual mark or implant or vaccine. It has everything to do with the heart. And what we are reading about is a counterfeit of devotion unto God. We read from the Shema during our dedication. Let's listen to it again. Another part of it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. The Jews were to love God so deeply that he was first in their mind. And every movement of the hand was in obedience to him. It was to be a wholehearted love of God. A sign or a mark upon the hand or the forehead was just a symbol of that wholehearted devotion to God. The mark of the beast, that's not a barcode or a chip. It's about devotion to Satan. It's a counterfeit of what God has made. To have the mark of the beast is to reject Jesus as your true king. It is to be comfortable with the darkness into which you were born. It is to refuse to repent. And all you have to do is nothing. It's that easy. Nothing. But without even realizing it, in the dark, there you are at the feet of an idol an idol of your own making. Perhaps it's your kids, or your nest egg, or your influence, or your special relationship with God. All of these things seem so 
innocent, like a lamb. But there's a dragon inside, and he is hungry to put his mark on you. To the mark of the beast is to have the devil as your father, and it is to be twisted into his wicked image and to worship at the synagogue of Satan. The mark of the beast was never meant to be understood literally. It's a symbol just like the symbolic mark of God in Deuteronomy 6 that now the devil is trying to counterfeit. But satanic devotion in the first century was upheld and it was encouraged and it was propagated and it was supported by most profoundly by one individual. Verse 17 says that he has a name. The beast has a name. And that there's a number for this name, the infamous 666. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understand, who has understanding, calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. There is a lot of layering going on in that number, but I'm going to touch only on one of those layers. Verse 17 indicates its name. Verse 18 says it's of a man. And it says that it calls for wisdom to understand, meaning you can understand it. It is not supposed to be an unsolvable mystery. It's understandable. It just takes wisdom. So we need to understand a game. A game or a code that was very common in the ancient world. It seems strange to us today, but nearly every language had its own version of this game. In Hebrew, the game is called gematria. Even today, Orthodox Jews still play this game or use this code. In gematria, every letter of the alphabet is assigned a number, and so you can take letters of words, put them together, add up those respective numbers, and get a whole number, a sum, a value for a word or a name. For instance, in Pompeii, there's graffiti found on a wall, and it says, I love her whose number is 545. But that graffiti in in Pompeii was Greek, the common language. John says this calls for wisdom to decipher decipher 666. So it's not going to be that straightforward. It's not going to be that easy. In fact, it only works if you use John's native tongue, Hebrew. Another reason to think that Revelation was written largely to Jewish Christians. The name of the beast must be translated first into Hebrew, and then you get 666. In Hebrew, Nero's name is Neron Kaiser. Hebrew has no vowels. You take each number, you put them together, you add them up, and you get 666. Hellenists were Jews that were not native Hebrew speakers. They spoke Greek. They were born into Greek language. And so when they tried to play gematria with Nero's name, They didn't know the correct spelling. They dropped a letter. They ended up with the number 616. Interesting that in many, in in a number of ancient manuscripts, the number of the beast as found in Revelation 13 is 616. 
because they were using the same name, they just spelled it a little differently. So it's verified from two different directions that Nero is 666, the beast, the Antichrist. Rome is the beast of Revelation 13, and the beast is personified in Nero. Who is the Antichrist, who claimed that he was the Son of God, who demanded worship from across an empire, the one who killed Christians for sport, and the one who arrogantly defied the Ancient of Days. The second beast is the Jewish religious establishment. As a whole, they have become a false prophet. They lead the people of Israel to worship a false god. For it is not Yahweh that they worship in their temple, but it is an idol constructed out of their traditions and their religious gesticulations. They have rejected Christ as king and have chosen instead to serve the Antichrist as their king. And both of these beasts are ultimately servants of the dragon. Now, these beasts belong to the first century, and we need not worry about them. Rome and the Jewish religious system, they have passed. But the dragon is not gone. And there are countless false gods and false prophets that are hungry for your devotion, and they cry out to you. Day and night, and they clothe themselves very nicely and they slip into the church seats. And so I exhort you, brothers and sisters, with your Bible firmly in your hand and the Spirit of God within your heart, stand firm. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. That is our promise for standing firm. Stand fast, and your name will be on the lips of Christ. Father, we praise you that you have given to us such a great gift in the true King of Kings, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. All glory be to you, all dominion be to him. Forever may he reign. And may we exalt him in all ways as he reigns. It's in his name we pray. Amen.